0: Hello, my dark and shiny gems. You're listening to Trinity Radio, a podcast where we explore dark music and the culture that surrounds it. I'm your host, DJ Cheshireen, and today we're exploring soundtracks from dark cult classic films. Of course, we will hear music, some trip-hop, post-punk, industrial, and trance. We'll also hear interviews and an analysis of the soundtracks behind some woeful, influential films like The Matrix, Romeo and Juliet, Train Spotting, and more. Grab your popcorn and get comfy. It's showtime.
1: Trinity Radio.
0: As many of you may know, Trinity Radio is a culture commentary podcast with a focus on music. This episode is special because it's our first time treading into some newer waters. While I have no doubt that many of you beautiful swans are multidisciplined thinkers and artists, I still want to give some background information about cult films for those who aren't familiar. A cult film, also referred to as a cult classic, is a movie that's acquired a dedicated, passionate fan base, which forms a really elaborate subculture. The term cult film was initially used to describe the culture that surrounded a phenomenon called midnight movie. So what is a midnight movie? A midnight movie is basically the name for a marketing approach to help unsuccessful box office movies get more attention by showing those movies during off-peak hours, a.k.a. midnight while the daytime or primetime slots were reserved for more popular and mainstream box office hits. The concept of a midnight movie started in the 1950s with TV. To maintain viewership, some local TV stations around the U.S. started airing programs late at night. These late-night time slots were after the safe harbor time. Kids would be put to bed, most people were ending their day, Which meant that whatever showed during these late night time slots were kind of exempt from certain rules by the Federal Communications Commission. Late night made it the perfect time to show things that were either too niche or even indecent. The midnight selections were usually low budget, offbeat, horror oriented. God, try saying that three times fast. Horror oriented, horror oriented, horror oriented. I had to redo this so many times. (laughs) The midnight selections were usually low budget, offbeat horror-oriented, niche, foreign, or just had explicit content. One of the earliest successful midnight movie efforts in goth culture started in 1953 with a small local TV station. One night at a masquerade ball in Los Angeles, a producer at KABC TV met a young actress named Mila Nermi. Mila was dressed in a dramatic costume, this gaunt white makeup and a plunging, skin-tight black dress. With midnight movies in mind for his station, the producer asked the actress if she'd like to dress in this character and host a late-night horror movie show. Mila accepted the offer and would present weekly in a costume as this blood-sucking, pinned down girl called Vampyra.
1: It says that she is a gaunt, black-haired, glamour ghoul who comes out through ominous, drifting mist. Well, now, this
2: is obviously not true because I don't believe in that sort of stuff, you know. And it says that she has a pet spider named Rollo, and I can't be, and she hates, you know how people exaggerate. She um, she hates the sunlight, and uh, she's the ghostess with uh,
3: more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> She'd invite the viewer to her living room, sit on this Victorian skull-decorated sofa, and introduce midnight movies. The show ran weekly, it was canceled after one year when the actress refused to sell her character to ABC. Vampyra was Mila's intellectual property, and part of the appeal of that show was that it was fringe. In fact, while you may have heard of The Vampyra Show, the original show never actually aired outside of the Los Angeles area. However, it did inspire the creation of later midnight movie TVs, such as Elvira's Movie Macabre and Tales from the Crypt. But enough about TV, this episode is about movies. And yes, midnight movies were also shown in theaters with aisles, popcorn, and the big silver screen, the whole shebang. So unlike Vampyra, there wasn't a host to curate a vibe or really jazz things up. Any sort of hype or social engagement was left up to the audience. By showing these movies so late, theaters were able to run repeat views, sometimes even back-to-back or just consecutive nights in a row. And by doing so, this created an opportunity to garner social interaction around the film. Among these midnight movies was a musical comedy horror distributed by 20th Century Fox in 1975 called The Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Rocky Horror Picture Show follows a couple whose car breaks down on a rainy night in an eerie castle. Seeking help, the couple goes up to the castle where they're greeted with this mad scientist who's also an alien. An alien transvestite mad scientist visiting from the planet transsexual in the galaxy Transylvania. From a social and political standpoint, Rocky Horror was light years ahead of its time. Even in more metropolitan, progressive cities, the initial reception of this movie was really negative. The film's first release was in London and Los Angeles, but due to a very small turnout, the movie was pulled from eight other opening cities. As a backup plan, 20th Century Fox attempted to re-release Rocky Horror in college campus theaters, but it just continued to fail. It was at that point that Fox executives resorted to midnight screenings. On April Fool's Day of 1976, the Rocky Horror Picture Show started a midnight movie screening in New York City at the Waverly Theater. And then another in Seattle, in Sacramento. And to help build a fan base, some theaters even let you watch the movie for free if you arrived in costume. And it was then that the cult legacy began because the Rocky Horror Picture Show ran at the Waverly Theater for 95 weeks. That's almost two years. And as of today, it is considered to be the longest running release in film history. Midnight screenings of the film became a national sensation. Every Friday and Saturday, audience members would go back to the screen, dress up as characters in the film, and even act out scenes complete with their own pops. Around the same era, there were major box office films like the James Bond series, Star Wars films, and Planet of the Apes series. And movie studios came to realize that making films could be even more lucrative if they were converted into multifaceted experiences. Action figures, clothing, posters. Corporations began to look at films as products, thereby naming a series of films as a franchise. But cult films are usually oppositional to the mainstream taste. Their appeal is more theoretical than tangible. The appreciation for occult films would be dissected through discussions about music, philosophy, and existentialism. And that, my beautiful gems, is what brings us to our first feature film.
2: Come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. Patience.
0: Since the turn of the millennium, the most notable success among Midnight movies is Richard Kelly's 2001 sci-fi psychological thriller, Donnie Darko. Set in 1988, the film follows Donnie, a heavily medicated, emotionally troubled teenager who inadvertently escapes this freak fatal accident by sleepwalking. In his repeated sleepwalking episodes, Donnie has these hallucinations of this mysterious man named Frank, Frank appears as an anthropomorphic demonic bunny, meaning this bunny who kind of looks like a human. He stands on two legs, he has two eyes, he has arms, but he looks pretty freaky, really hard to explain. But in a sleepwalking episode, Frank makes a prophecy to Donnie that goes something like this. Donnie Darko's release date was October 2001, just one month after the devastating September 11th attacks in the U.S. And the fatal freak accident that Donnie escaped was a jet engine that mysteriously fell from the sky, crushing the roof of his bedroom. By September 11th, filming was already completed, and the trailer featured scenes of this jet disaster. At the time, showing a trailer like this was too controversial, and out of sensitivity to the public, promotional efforts for this movie were really limited. So the movie did really poorly in theaters, and in effort for continued success, the film was given midnight screenings at the Pioneer Theater in New York City. And there, it ran for 28 straight months. Tragedy aside, what sets Donnie Darko apart as a cult classic are its really obscure themes. Donnie Darko had a lot of thought-provoking motifs. Time travel, ominous portals, premonitions, and this anthropomorphic demon bunny rabbit. Music also plays a huge role in Donnie Darko. The film's soundtrack features mostly dark 80s New Wave classic songs. So nowadays, if someone was to make an 80s teen period piece like, I don't know, Stranger Things, using New Wave bangers would be kind of cliche. But when this was made in 2001, that music hadn't really become cool again yet. And being a low-budget film, the creators couldn't afford this big composer to write an original score for the movie. So they needed someone more accessible, someone young, promising, who could write new music, but someone who could also curate a soundtrack with music that already existed, because it's cheaper. So they hired Michael Andrews, this emerging artist from San Diego. Andrews curated a couple needle drops by Duran Duran, The Church, Joy Division, and Tears for Fears. Unlike a lot of other soundtracks that run in the background, the songs that Andrews selected really blare in the foreground. In fact, in Donnie Darko, some of these songs get just as much attention as the visuals on the screen that they accompany. You could even say that, without the music, the pictures alone couldn't convey the same story. Here's the opening scene. There's a deep blue sky, and the tiniest glimmer of sun starts to show. Donnie lies asleep on the shoulder of a cliff edge. His bicycle is toppled beside him. He starts to awaken. He's barefoot, dressed in pajamas. His hair disheveled, his eyes groggy. He stands up to get oriented. There are mountains. He's in the middle of nowhere. How did he get there? He looks down and smiles at his feet, as though nowhere is a familiar place to him. Cue these riffs. Johnny mounts on his bike and cruises home to this timeless and mesmerizing track. This is Echo and the Bunnymen, The Killing Room, on Trinity Radio. That was The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen. The Killing Moon was written in 1984, 27 years before Donnie Darko was created. According to the songwriter Ian McCulloch, The Killing Moon is about predestiny. The story behind how he came up with the lyrics is pretty interesting. Um, He actually just woke up one morning with them in mind, and the chord progression to this song actually comes from David Bowie's space oddity played backwards. Here is the story.
3: came in, in stages, I think the verse, I came, came up with that verse, just... I've never told anyone this, but I think uh, what I did was wonder what the chords of Space Odyssey backwards would sound like. So instead of... I went. And thereby... Yeah, I created the greatest song ever One morning I woke up in bed uh, with the lyric fate up against your will through the thicket thing. You'll wait until you give yourself to him. It was, and I remember thinking that God must have woken me up with those words, because it it wasn't that I I just woke up and he was there. So between me, David Bowie, the Bunny Man and God, and if God did write it, he used to argue against it being the greatest song ever.
2: Using
0: this song as the opening track really seems like a match made in the stars. The song pairs something as innocent as teen youth with this inevitable and dreadful ending, which is what the movie is about. And with parallel themes of predestiny, cruel romance, space, and a bunny man, you would almost think that this song and the movie were made for each other.
1: Trinity Radio. What's...
0: The next cult film we'll discuss is a woeful romance of two star-crossed lovers. One of the earlier cults and playwrights was the cult of William Shakespeare. The cult of Shakespeare began in 18th-century Europe, but eventually spread to a more global scale. One of Shakespeare's earliest stories was Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet takes place in Verona, Italy. It's a tragic romance between these two young lovers who come from feuding families. In 1996, director and producer Baz Luhrmann created a modern adaptation of the play as a major motion picture. One neat aspect of his movie is that the script actually retains the original Shakespearean dialogue, but visually it uses modern bells and whistles. So there are some differences. Instead of appearing as well-kempt royalty, the feuding families are portrayed as warring mafia empires in the contemporary U.S. Verona, Italy is called Verona Beach, and it was actually filmed in this remote desert of Mexico City. Swords are replaced with guns. It's violent. It's romantic, yet fiery. It's grungy, as is the soundtrack's opening song. This is the band Garbage with their song, Number One Crush, on Trinity Radio. (music) Was Number One Crush by Garbage. Although the lyrics fit the narrative, Number One Crush wasn't written for Romeo and Juliet. Garbage recorded the song one year before the movie was made, and it was released on the B side of their debut album. Sort of like a Midnight movie, a B side in music is the side of a record or tape that typically receives less attention, while the A side is intended to be focused for radio airplay and promotion. Nevertheless, the band's manager, Shannon O'Shea, pitched number one crush to the film's distributor, 20th Century Fox. And they said yes. Number one crush peaked at number one on Billboard's Hot Modern Rock Tracks, where it stayed for four weeks. Four weeks. This was a B-side of their debut album. Wow. Just like, imagine making something for the first time and not even expecting it to really go anywhere. And then it's number one on the Billboard charts for four weeks. Number One Crush was also nominated for Best Song from a Movie at the 1997 MTV Music Awards. According to the writer and vocalist Shirley Manson, Number One Crush is about an obsessive lover. When she was asked about the song's meaning, Shirley explained, quote, Everyone has felt obsessive about something or someone in their life. The song is that feeling, usually after splitting up with someone when you're absolutely obsessed with what they're doing. If you asked the record label's managers, he feared the song would end up on a suicide note. But to Manson, while well, she felt otherwise, she stated, quote, All real love is a form of obsession. If you love someone more than anything else, that degree of exclusivity requires an abnormal amount of passion and care, unquote. And such is the tale of Romeo and Juliet, two young lovers who would rather kill to be together and rather die than be apart.
1: Trinity Radio. <laughs>
0: If we're going to talk about tragic love stories, it would be a crime to leave out our next feature. The Crow is a 1994 dark American superhero film directed by Alex Proyas. The movie is based on a comic book that was created by James O'Barr of the same name. The Crow stars Brandon Lee in his final film appearance as Eric Draven, a heavy metal guitarist who lives with his loving partner, Shelley. one romantic night in their towering Gothic loft apartment, Eric proposes to Shelly, who not only says yes, but tells Eric that she loves him. The two plan their wedding to be on Halloween, but on Devil's Night, the night before Halloween, a gang breaks into the apartment and viciously attacks the couple. Eric is shot and thrown out of the window to his death. Shelley passes away in the hospital the next day, and the gang runs free. One year after the murders, we see Eric's grave. A crow lands on the gravestone and taps on it, which resurrects Eric. The story is one of justice. The crow, who possesses supernatural powers, guides Eric to avenge his death and that of his fiance. Along the journey, Eric visits he and Shelley's old apartment, where he begins to see these flashbacks of his murder. These flashbacks hit him suddenly, over and over and over, and he slowly collects memories of his life and its tragic end. The film follows Eric as he navigates the struggle of being both crippled by grief and mobilized by injustice. The soundtrack features a variety of alternative and metal artists, and the film has cameo appearances by My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult and Medicine. But unlike the other songs we've played today, this next song was written specifically for the movie. "Burn" by The Cure was the soundtrack's opener and the movie's main theme song. The story goes that the comic creator, James O'Barr, was a huge fan of Robert Smith from The Cure, and vice versa. Originally, Obar's plan was to use The Cure's 1982 song, The Hanging Garden, as the movie's theme. He loved The Hanging Garden so much that he reprinted its lyrics on an entire page in his comic. But rather than using old material, Smith decided to write an original song that actually suited the narrative of the film. This is "Burn" by The Cure on Trinity Radio. Burn by the Cure, composed originally for the Crow's original motion picture soundtrack. In addition to the Cure, another huge musical influence on the comic book was Joy Division. Just as James O'Barr printed the Cure lyrics into his comic, he also dedicated some of the comic's chapter titles to titles of Joy Division songs. But above all, the real inspiration for the comic was a very dark and difficult moment in O'Barr's life. When the artist was 18 years old, his fiance was killed in a hit and run by a drunk driver. As far as he knew, the driver was never found. Creating the Crow was a means of catharsis. The drawings were his outlet, and the character, Eric Draven, was a hero he imagined to bring him justice. The film preserves the integrity of the story. Brandon Lee, the actor who plays Eric Draven, talks about the sudden loss of his father, Bruce Lee, and how he leaned on that experience to develop into the character. But just as so many characters and people mentioned to this point, Brandon Lee's life and career were also cut short. During the Crow's production, Lee was fatally wounded on set by what was supposed to be a prop gun. Posthumously, he's received so much praise for his performance. What you're about to hear is one of Brandon Lee's final interviews talking about his character development for Eric Draven as the Crow.
1: This is a person who has been pushed right to the limits of his ability to cope with what is going on, and in a sense, is quite mad sometimes. In a sense, is completely insane. Almost in the sense that you might think of an insane person having voices, you know, uh, more rational voices that uh, try and guide him, uh, more irrational voices that come from a more emotional, more deep-seated place. I think that the crow is that rational voice. The crow is his guide. The crow helps Eric do what he has to do In a very practical sense, it leads him to the places that he has to be. It helps him find the people that he has to find. And then there's the part of him that is filled with rage towards what was done to him. He's torn up. He's torn up really badly, emotionally, physically, and psychically.
0: So the story goes the Crows come back to seek justice. The intention of his mission was pure, but threading through it all was this insurmountable pain. The next song is a cover. Originally recorded by Joy Division in 1979, Dead Souls alludes to having nothing left to give and nothing left to live for. In 1993, it was covered by Trent Reznor, AKA Nine Inch Nails. Dead Souls was released as a bonus track on the deluxe version of the second album, The Downward Spiral. The song was also released on the Crow's soundtrack, which went number one on the Billboard album chart. This is Nine Inch Nails cover of Dead Souls on Trinity Radio. Once again, Dead Souls was released as a bonus track on the album Downward Spiral, Deluxe Edition. This was Nine Inch Nails' second album and what would become probably their most successful album to date. Fresh from signing a new deal with Interscope Records in 1992, Trent Reznor spent a day viewing 15 houses in LA, looking to set up a home studio for the Downward Spiral. He settled upon a place at 10500 Cielo Drive. It was an old movie star place from the 40s. It was... Beautiful, spacious, ranch style, and very extravagant. One odd thing about it was it had the letters P I G written on the door in red. So the other houses in the neighborhood were pretty yuppie. They were luxury houses with names like Chez Rouge. So to make fun, Trent decided to name his studio Le Pig. He signed the rental, took up residence, and recorded his album there. It wasn't until a friend made a connection of the word pig in Cielo Drive that this house was actually famous. 24 years prior, another celebrity lived there. And 24 years before, that same celebrity also died there. Born in 1943, Sharon Tate was a prominent American TV and film actress. She was active in 1961 to 1969 and was hailed as Hollywood's most promising newcomers. That was until her life was cut short on August 9, 1969. Tate and her friends went out to dinner and returned to her Cielo Drive residence for a nightcap. Shortly after midnight, intruders broke into her home and savagely murdered Tate and four others. Their bodies were scattered throughout the house, and the front door was inscribed with the word pig in Tate's blood. Tate was eight and a half months pregnant at the time. The murders went unsolved for about a month, up until members of a cult called the Manson family were arrested for unrelated charges. A forensic investigation would show that the murders were not targeting Tate specifically, but rather it was just a senseless crime committed by the Manson family. Though it may seem like the ultimate publicity stunt for a man known for his dark and violent music, Reznor claims that he had no knowledge of the home's history before signing the rental agreement. A year later, after the album was finished, Reznor moved out and the house was demolished. The demolition was prompted by neighbors who were sick of spectators trolling their street. Reznor stated, quote, Sometimes I'd come home and find bouquets of dead roses and lit candles in the front gate. It was really eerie. Who were they leaving shrines for? Tate? Or Manson? unquote. And Reznor kept a relic of his own, the house's front door, as a memento of his stay.
1: Trinity Radio.
0: The next film up for discussion is a Trinity Radio favorite. The Matrix is a 1999 science fiction action film written and directed by the Wachowski sisters. The film takes place in a dystopian future. It follows Thomas Anderson, this average computer programmer who also doubles as a computer hacker under the alias Neo. Through his computer, Neo gets contacted by Rebellion, who informs him that life, as he knows it, is a deceptive, simulated reality called the Matrix. The Matrix is operated by an evil network of cyber-intelligent machines. The purpose is to distract the human mind while using humans' physical bodies as an energy source. This movie had an immense impact on the sci-fi genre. It was very visually breathtaking and had this sort of hyper-surreal technological world and the real world as we think we know it. And in addition, in 1999, The Matrix prompted people to question for the first time, what was the potential effect of internet commercialization? In 1999, the internet and cyber network as a prevalent household network was still growing. Um, In the developed world, only 20% of houses actually had internet. E-commerce was still developing. You could even pay for groceries at a grocery store with a written check. People didn't walk around with computers in their pockets. And so The Matrix hosts of philosophical references. Religion, purpose, existentialism, and the genesis of mankind was fundamental to its cult following. On one hand, you have the original motion picture soundtrack, which is full of big beat and industrial music. There's frenzied percussion, cacophonous metal sounds, and lyrics that boast anarchy. And then you have the original motion picture score, which is classical, orchestral, triumphant with dramatic opera. While this next song isn't exactly included in the soundtrack, it is featured in the film. And it's actually the first song played in the entire movie. In this scene, the audience sees Neo for the first time. A bird's eye view camera rotates to show Neo's apartment. He's asleep, but he's wearing headphones. His arms are stretched across a cluttered work desk. He's hunched over his keyboard. He's alone. The sound of down-tempo trip-hop softly leaks through his headphones. Surrounding Neo are two computer monitors, CDs and scattered papers. Despite appearing disorganized, he's comfortable. Comfortable in the dark. Comfortable being alone. Comfortable living just to work. Or is he? As the first track and only track of its kind in the film, Massive Attack's Dissolved Girl goes against the grain of the film. It's slow and euphonic like a lullaby. But over time, the delicate trip hop builds into this hypnotic, DJ-esque dub style. In this scene, Neo's sleep is disturbed when his monitor mysteriously displays the words, Wake up, Neo. The Matrix has you. Follow the White Rabbit. Suddenly, the screen goes black, and Neo is left wondering if he's awake or dreaming. This is Dissolved Girl on Trinity Radio.
4: Such you yeah.
0: was Massive Attack's Dissolved Girl. Once again, although this song was featured in the film, it doesn't appear on the official soundtrack. At this point in the movie, Neo is guided to the underworld to meet Morpheus, a figurehead in the Rebellion. And for the first time, Neo learns the shocking truth about the Matrix. Here's a clip from the scene.
1: The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window, or when you turn on your television. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to you. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.
0: A red pill it is. Neo goes down the rabbit hole. And for the first time, sees the real world. Through a montage of action sequences and mind games, Neo begins learning how to infiltrate his way through the Matrix. The accompanying sound piece is an instrumental composition by Australian music producer Rob Duggan. The song Clubbed to Death was first featured in the 1997 French drama film Clubbed to Death, but the song received renewed attention after its darker Kriamino remix was included in the Matrix soundtrack. So here it is, Rob Duggan's Clubbed to Death Kriamino remix on Trinity Radio. like about that track is its blend of neoclassical elements with this syncopated breakbeat rhythm. Personally, as an electronic music enthusiast, I have to say that that formula, breakbeats, big beats, are some of my favorite flavors. If you're new to the term breakbeat, it's essentially just a structure of rhythm. If in a measure of music you have four beats, a breakbeat usually has the kick on beat one while the snare is on beat two and four. Here's an example. Pioneering artists of the electronic breaks genre were Chemical Brothers, The Crystal Method, and The Prodigy, who is also featured on the Matrix soundtrack. And there are a few reasons that I think that these breaks songs like Club to Death work really well for the movie. The human brain looks for patterns, but we only like patterns up until a point. Once we've figured out the pattern, it gets boring and we can stop paying attention. But if the pattern changes, it grabs our attention again, and we find that extremely gratifying. Good breakbeats are just complicated enough to challenge our pattern recognition ability without totally overwhelming our brains. And this goes hand in hand with Neo's experience in the movie. Before going down the rabbit hole, Neo was super comfortable with his simple life. He was so comfortable he could pass out at his work desk, but eventually he chooses to break from his structure and transcends the artificial dreamland. In the first few minutes of Club to Death, the beat certainly carries the song, but soon elements like violin, cello, and bass are introduced. Then the use of metallic instruments layered on top of each other create these really quick percussive moments that emulate these oppressive machines that are taking over the world in The Matrix. Over time, the song fiddles with these alarming noises, but also really calming measures, bringing into a full orchestra to accompany. Against these elements, the beat feels less prominent, and it kind of symbolizes the structure of the matrix becoming weaker and weaker. The beat is still actually playing at the same volume, but the melody and harmonizing strings start to overpower the drums, a leitmotif in the song which marks the triumph of mankind over evil in the movie. Our final cult classic is a 1996 British Black comedy drama. Amidst the era of Britpop, Beanie Babies, and Princess Diana, emerged Train Spotting, a movie that captures the cool vibe of Britannia. Filmed in Edinburgh, Scotland, Train Spotting is an exploration of the tragic yet hilariously entertaining lives of four heroin addicts. Central to the story is Mark Renton, a young man who is suspended between a life of ennui and untempered gratification from heroin. Renton and his friends are largely driven by a desire to escape from reality in any possible way. They reinforce chaos in each other's lives from which they have a really hard time extricating. They see their life as having two options. On one hand, heroin brings them pleasure, but it also ruins their lives. Renton shares his thoughts of existential dread through these poetic monologues like this one. Choose life.
1: Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a
2: family. Choose a fucking big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays and electrical tin openings. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose a three-piece suite on higher purchase and a range of fucking fabrics. Choose life. But why would I want to do a thing like that?
1: I chose not to choose life. I chose something else. And the reasons? But I'm no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got head
4: on?
0: That was Mark Rutten's famous Choose Life monologue. You can hear the song Lust for Life by Iggy Pop playing in the background. The soundtrack for Trainspotting went on to become a pop culture phenomenon. Nearly all of the scores pre-recorded music from existing artists. The soundtrack could be divided into three groups, all with different eras and styles of music. The first group of music is 1970s pop, with artists such as Iggy Pop and Lou Reed, who are notoriously associated with drug use. The second group is music from the Britpop era in the 1990s, with bands such as Blur and Pulp. By touching on both of these areas, the soundtrack was really able to match a fictional story to the true state of the world that the story was shot in. The selections also demonstrate the inequities between Britain and Scotland at the time. Britain was going through this pop culture mega-boom, while its lesser colony, Scotland, was in this immense economic depression. Finally, the third group of music is techno, trance, and dance music from the 1990s, like our final featured track. After his first overdose in the film, Retton's parents take him back to their house to take care of him. They bring him into his childhood bedroom. They tuck him into his bed and bring him food, warning that there will be no more heroin, and he will be forced to detox cold turkey. His parents head for the door as Retton screams, begging for one last hit of heroin. They ignore him, then cruelly bolt him in his room alone. He's in junkie limbo, too ill to sleep, too tired to stay awake, and he feels the sickness is on its way, like a train approaching a platform. Cue our final track, Dark and Long, by the British electronic music group, Underworld. Known for their progressive compositions and dynamic builds, Underworld sets a perfectly hypnotic tone for this moment of the film. Renton is left to detox alone, blood is rushing through his veins, nightmarish visions envelop him, sweat-soaked sheets tangle his body as he tosses and turns, it's like every molecule in him is imploding. Renton descends into a detox-induced hallucination in his childhood bed, and that is when we as the viewer become privy to those memories that most haunt his psyche. This is Underworld's Dark and Long on Trinity Radio. Was dark and long by Underworld. The use of trance music to accompany the drug relapse and recovery scenes is a symbolic leitmotif. The music and the relapse recover experiences can both be overstimulating and tranquilizing. Both contain a lot of energy, but the repetitive nature both of drug addiction and trance music can foreshadow a predictable outcome. As mentioned earlier with The Matrix, our minds get bored of patterns in music. Most of us need more build and more stimulation to feel content. So to those who don't partake, they might ask, how can you stand that? How can you do that? Or how can you listen to that? What's the point? There is no point. As addiction is portrayed in the film, it isn't really linear. It's often circular, and at times it's outright repetitive. Part of the reason why Train Spotting drew so much controversy was its refusal to shy away from the consequences of taking drugs. Like many of the best dark comedies, there are moments in the film which are genuinely tough to watch, either because they're too disturbing in and of themselves, or because their implications are so heartbreaking. And that's just it. Train Spotting doesn't glorify heroin. It glorifies youth. Youth at its worst, mostly. It can be humorous, but also tragic. It's kind of like listening to music. The experience of the song or the movie may vary depending on where you are or who you're watching with. With peers, you might laugh at the irrationality and foolishness of the addiction. But if you're watching alone, the story could feel really heavy. And therefore, I hope you can take these songs away and give them your own meaning. Make your own soundtrack to your life. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. And cut, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. I am DJ Cheshireen from San Diego, California. But no matter where you're from in the world, let's connect on Instagram at trinity.xm. We can connect about more music, movies, culture, and just chit-chat. Thank you so much, my beautiful gems. Talk to you next time.